This week has, uh, has been a rather difficult week for me. Um, I have, uh, I mean, my grandfather passed away, right? And um, being a Christian, uh, you're able to be a lot more optimistic when it comes to death. Uh, because you know that there is a, a promise. And so I've been thinking a lot on the resurrection. Now, uh, if you're exploring Christianity for the first time or you're tuning in online and, and you're slightly skeptical about this Christian faith, uh, the resurrection really is everything. Uh, the Apostle Paul actually says if the resurrection is not true, then our faith is essentially vain. It's pointless. He says we of all people should be pitied more than anyone else. Why? Because we're committed to something that is seemingly incomprehensible, the fact of a resurrection. And yet, as I spent time on that this week, I realized that uh, the resurrection is, is rather rational. Uh, in fact, in John chapter 20, there's a word, theoreto, that is used when Peter goes into the tomb. Uh, and you develop a theory based off of something that is rational. And I think that that right there has been what has been helping me get through this week. I know that I've gone through a hard week. When I, when I tend to get stressed out, I don't know about you, but I start to have these things called night terrors. Um, Carissa has seen this uh, from time to time where my night terror exists as a bug in my bed. So even in college, I would, uh, if I was on the top bunk, I would hop down and I would take all the sheets off my bed and I would just toss them and wipe down my, my mattress. And my roommate would always, you know, kind of perk up and didn't know what to do because I just was like, there's a bug, there's a bug, there's a bug, you know, as I'm coming out of deep sleep. Um, and, you know, Carissa has seen me do that time and time again where I hop up and I turn on the light in the middle of the night and uh, she's like there's no bug Luke no no there was and I, I remember one time I pointed to the sprinkler and I was like oh I was just checking it or something like that trying to realizing that I had woken up in the middle of the night frantic about something but last night I, I woke up and I thought there was a spider and I woke up Carissa and I was like there's a spider there's a... and I know that that is a symptom of when I have come to the end of myself and I'm going to sleep exhausted, mentally drained, and just sad. I know that that is something that happens. And so uh, I appreciate all of those who have reached out, who have texted me, who have called, for it is like, like uh, Mr. Rajan shared. Sometimes it's cloudy and you're not able to keep your eyes on the sun. And so it's looking at somebody else and the comfort that somebody else brings that helps us get through. And so as we open up our uh, Bibles today to look at what two midwives teach us about discipleship, let us just bow our heads for prayer again. Lord, we, we ask that you would be with us, for Father, we need you. Lord, we're, we're going through just an unprecedented time, and it, and it almost becomes tiresome to say that over and over and over again. But Lord, truly, we need you. We need you every minute of every day. And so Lord, as we have gathered here, just may we take the opportunity to maybe acknowledge that the reason we're here is because we need you. And to be humble enough 
to listen to whatever it is that you want to share with us today for asking for your word to pierce our hearts in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, I have often found myself, myself in situations where it's, I'm almost being asked to compromise on my belief system. Um, I'm asked to go against what God has said is, is good. Maybe you have uh, had a similar experience as me where uh, you, you were asked one time, um, uh, you, you were, your spouse was getting ready and came down and had a new outfit on and asked you, how do I look? And you're not exactly um, very fond of it. You don't think that it presents them in their full beauty. But what do you say? Right? I mean, you're, you're, the Bible says, do not tell a lie. So do you say you look nice? Or do you say, no, I think, I think. What do you do? Right? How do you, how do you answer that? How do you remain faithful to what the Bible says, technically, in a time like that? Or maybe it's, it's not as humorous as that. Maybe it's at work when your coworker asks you to inflate some numbers. Or your coworker asks you to, uh, to bend the truth because they took a little bit of a longer break and the boss was wondering where they were. What do you do then? What do you do when uh, you're in class and your assignment is is uh, due that day and you, you were caught off guard and you know that your friend has done it and so you could just ask because they're a good friend and you could just kind of, you know, change a little bit of the showing your work part and it'd be okay. What do you do if you lived in uh, occupied uh, Europe during World War II and you're hiding a, a Jewish family in your basement and the Gestapo shows up on your door and asks if you're hiding a Jewish family in your basement. What do you do? How do we as Christians seek to be faithful to the way that God leads us in a, in a day and age when we're constantly asked to compromise? And I think there's a story in the Bible that shows us not only that those situations will come every day, but where we can find our principle or our value that gets us through. Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 21. It says, Now a new king arose over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply, and in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor, and they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out, so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to do labor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks and at all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. This is nothing new. It's nothing new at all, right? You, you, you have a group of people that are, a, are an outside culture living within the confines of another kingdom, 
and they're becoming numerous. And so what does Pharaoh seek to do? He says, okay, we'll make it hard on them because we don't want them rising up. We don't want them challenging our way of doing things. And so we'll tire them out so that they can't stay up all night dreaming of ways to, to conquer us. Or maybe that way they can't befriend the neighboring nations to come into our territory teaming up to conquer us. And so Pharaoh, a new Pharaoh arose. He doesn't know the history he didn't care to learn the history of how the Israelites came into this land. He doesn't care to realize that it was because of this man named Joseph, who was a younger sibling who was sold into slavery by his older siblings and became the second most powerful man in the known world at that time through nothing other than a miracle of God because this man Joseph could interpret the dreams of Pharaoh. In fact, if it was not for Joseph, Egypt wouldn't have survived their famine. Pharaoh wouldn't have known what the dreams meant. He wouldn't have known that it was seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. He, he wouldn't have known. He would have just acted out of his default and then crisis would have hit and he would have just done the best that he could. But perhaps he would have gone down in history as the last Pharaoh of Egypt. But now, one of his children, somebody else, rises up and is the new Pharaoh, but did not know Joseph. He just sees the Israelites. He just sees the nation of Israel and how they're kind of occupying the land, and he looks at them as a threat. He looks at the foreigners as a threat. And so he comes up with this plan, a plan that political leaders have done time and time again. We will tax them, we will exhaust them, we will make it hard for them to live so they have no energy. But it's not working. Because I think what we've seen in history is when people are oppressed, when people are exhausted, it does not always work out the way that you think it would, that they would just kind of understand. The Israelites grow. It makes me think of when the Roman Empire tried to stamp out Christianity, but the more they killed Christians, the stronger the Christian community became. In fact, there's this quote that the seed of martyrs, or the blood of martyrs, is the seed of Christianity. It makes me think of that. And so, after realizing that his plan is not working, this Pharaoh, this new king, comes up with a, a secondary plan. In verse 15, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, and the other named Pua, and he said, When you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth, and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. Shifra and Pua, two Hebrew midwives. Notice, they're named, but the Pharaoh is not named. The most powerful man in the world is not given a name, and yet these two obscure Hebrew midwives are named. You know, the Bible often tells the stories of those that uh, God sees. God knows. Not the most powerful individuals. No, those who labor faithfully when, when their neighbor might not even know their name. And so Shifra and Pua, could you imagine the anxiety to be asked to do this? I mean, you're a midwife. You've dedicated your life to service. You, bring, you help bring life into the world. It makes me think of that scene in The Lion King when, what's, what's the baboon's name, Rafiki? Rafiki, he comes out and he's, he's got Simba and he comes out to Pride Rock and he elevates him and it's like the greatest scene in The Lion King. I mean, it's like the scene that everyone knows, even if you haven't seen that. You've seen that clip, right? I mean, that's, 
uh, it's a midwife. They're bringing life into the world. They're helping life enter the world. They've seen the miracle of life time and time and time again, and now they're being asked to take life. How tough that must have been. And the fear behind it. This is the most powerful man. The one who, whose life, Shifra and Pua's life is in his hands. And they're being asked to take the lives of little boys. Little Hebrew boys. So what would you do when you're put in a situation like this? Would you come up with a plan where you might uh, embellish a little bit the truth? to save your skin as well as others? Would you go through with it because you're between a rock and a hard place and you just kind of have to and God is going to wink at because God knows and he understands? It might not be murder that you're being asked to do, but it might be supporting political regimes that kill people. It might be supporting companies that abuse sweatshops. It might, we are asked every day to support things. We're asked every day as Christians to be a part of things. We're asked every day as Christians to deviate from God or to follow God. There's, there's really two ways. In fact, the early Christian church, if you wanted to become a Christian in second century Christianity, you had to go through this thing called the Didache. And the Didache was a list of teachings that started out this way. There are two ways of life. or There are two ways, the way to life and the way to death. Two ways. You get to pick. Which one do you want to choose? The way to life or the way to death? And you would think, ah, oh, naturally, oh, of course, I'm any sane person, any logical person, any person who thinks would choose the way of life. But then the Dadahe went down and talked about how the way of life includes adoption, adopting the babies that are put on the street corner infanticide. That's the way of life, is taking in babies that have been given up because they have a birth defect. That's the way of life. It's to love your enemy. It's to, to go the extra mile for them, to, to give your coat off of your back if you see them cold. That's the way of life. That, now, that looks a lot like sacrifice. What do you mean that's the way of life? And then it chronicles the way of death and how the way of death is basically selfishness. It's hoarding on to your possessions. It's dwelling with those who are only going to compliment you, who are only going to be there for you, who are going to build you up. And so Shifra and Pur, they're, they're faced with two paths. The way that the Pharaoh is asking them or the way that God is asking them. And so it says in verse 17, perhaps one of the greatest lines in the book of Exodus, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. Now as an instigator as somebody who just likes to stoke the pot, I mean, I'm immediately in this story. I'm thinking, wow, okay, Shifra and Pua, they're defying the most powerful man in the world. That is, I mean, that just, that energizes me because that's just, I like watching those types of movies. I like hearing those types of stories. I mean, it's just, that's just how I've always been. And so Shifra and Pua, you have my attention. But what is their motivator? You know, there's this man, his name is Simon Sinek, and he's a leadership consultant. In fact, he's, he's asked to speak. Um, I, I, find, I've, I don't know how he got into his position, but Simon, if you ever watch this man, I want to know. He sent me an email. Um, but he, I mean, he's, he's consulted with the government. He goes to base after base after base talking about leadership and how to have good leadership principles. 
He, he didn't start a nonprofit that changed the world and his leadership principles are different. He, he just, out of, out of nowhere almost, started talking about leadership. And his most well-known book is Start With Why. Why do you do it? He looked at the CEOs of good companies like Apple or uh, Microsoft a little bit back in the day, but they're coming up, they're you know, on the rise again. And he said that they communicate their why, not what they do. Nobody cares about what you do. It's more so about why you do it. And here, Shifra and Pua, they show us their why. It's they feared God. Now, hold on a minute. Aren't we told to not fear God? I mean, why, why would I be fearful of God if he's supposed to be this loving God, this creator God that wants to give me eternal life? Why would I be told to be fearful of him? In fact, Proverbs, the, the book of wisdom in the Bible, says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if you want to learn to be wise, you have to start, by, start where? By fearing God. Well, that doesn't really make sense to me at all because God portrays himself as a loving friend, as a conquering king, as the only savior. So why would he be asking me to be fearful of him? Well, see, the Bible doesn't use fear the same way that we might use fear. You know, when we think of fear, we think of something that might overwhelm you, right? We think of a night terror, like a spider in your bed. Right? We think of that fear, something that is scary, when really fear is something that you can just you give reverence to. You, you almost just kind of, it, it, it makes you take it seriously because of its characteristics. And so Shifra and Pua, they fear the Lord. And when I think of Shifra and Pua, I also think of three Hebrew wise men that were, um, oh, what's, what's the phrase? They were sold into captivity by, um, basically by a Babylonian king. Their name is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they're asked to bow to the statue. And this is what they say. As they're about to be thrown into a furnace, they say this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give an answer concerning this matter. They're saying, we don't need to answer you. We don't need to re respond to you. You ever have that one person who messages you and you always feel like you have to give them a response back? but you keep giving a response and, and it, it just becomes a runaround, you're not going to convince them otherwise? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they say, nope, we're going to leave you on red, Nebuchadnezzar. We do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. We're not going to bow down. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Hey, that sounds great, right? God, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the most powerful king in the world at the time of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In fact, their names are not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are Babylonian names given to them by the oppressive kingdom that has control over them, seeking to show them that they have a different identity because they do, they're not free men. And yet they're not bowing to this statue that Nebuchadnezzar has said you have to bow to. And their response is, we, we don't need to give you an answer, but if you really want one, Nebuchadnezzar, we just, we're not going to. And our God, whom we serve, will deliver us. Hey, that's great, right? God is going to deliver us. But they go a little step further. Because what happens when it doesn't look like God delivers you? They say, but even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. Often when we think of our why, when we think of our guiding virtue, the motivation that helps us pioneer as a Christian, it's because God will bless us. What happens when God doesn't give us the blessing? 
what happens when push comes to shove and it gets worse? Is that going to cause us to deviate from the path? There's a pastor. He's, he's a retired pastor now. His name is Wayne Krause. And he talks about in, uh, in discipleship, at what point do you tell Christians about the lions? And what he's talking about is in 2nd century, 3rd century, and onward, if you became a Christian, there was no social benefit to becoming a Christian. You lost friends. You were deemed uh, not intelligent. What do you mean? You, you follow a risen rabbi? That, what? A Jewish man that, that came and was crucified? He was executed by the state, and now you're going to say that he is risen? That he's the savior of the world? You're going to say that? That doesn't make sense. You're obviously not thinking very well. What, what do you mean you help the poor? What do you mean you serve others? What do you mean you love your enemy? What do you mean you go the extra mile? What? Obviously, you've been duped. And so Wayne Krause, he says, at what point do you tell somebody who's thinking about becoming a Christian about the lions? Because back in the day, if you became a Christian, you'd be thrown to lions in the Colosseum. What happens when God doesn't deliver you from that? Do you, just, do you just stop? Do you just say, well, my faith was in vain? Or is there something more? See, Shifra and Pua, they, they make a decision. They're, they're asked to kill baby boys as midwives. And they say no. They say no to the most powerful man in their day. Because it's against what God asks of them. They don't know what's going to happen. They don't know the outcome. But they fear God. Now, Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, he says this, obviously, to be in the fear of the Lord is not to be scared of the Lord. Even though the Hebrew word has overtones of respect and awe, fear in the Bible means to be overwhelmed, to be controlled by something. To fear the Lord is to be overwhelmed with wonder before the greatness of God and his love. He goes on and says, it means that because of his bright holiness and magnificent love, you find him fearfully beautiful. That is why the more we experience God's grace and forgiveness, the more we experience a trembling awe and wonder before the greatness of all that he is and has done for us. Fearing him means bowing before him out of amazement at his glory and beauty. If you bow before God, you will fear no man. You won't. It won't matter what they, what they say. It won't matter the power they have behind them. If you bow before God, you'll fear no man. Jesus said, don't, don't fear the, the individual who can kill your body, right? Fear the individual who could kill you for eternity. If you bow before God, you'll fear no man. There's, there's no one who can strike fear in your heart because you know the God that is able to raise up the dead. You know the God of the resurrection. You know the God who didn't just sit on the sideline while you suffered, but stepped into your suffering through the incarnation and died at the hands of the Roman Empire, crucified on our behalf. That's the God. And so Shifra and Pua, what do they do? They say, no, 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 Pharaoh. We're not doing that. So verse 18, the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and let the boys live? Could you imagine getting that call? I mean, it's not a phone call, right? A messenger came with a piece of paper. And you know that the minute that messenger shows up, you, haven't even, you don't even have to read the paper. You just know that it's not good news. You're being summoned. So now you get the piece of paper. Do you read it? Are you someone that would read it? Looking for, you know, maybe a, a level of, of hope in it? 
Or do you read it and then think, this is, the minute I leave is, is the minute I start to walk towards my death. I mean, this is Pharaoh. They just defied Pharaoh. He could kill them easily. Nobody would ever think second, uh, a second thing about it. And so he summons them, and then he asks them, why have you done this thing and let the boys live? Notice how it says, why are the boys still being born? It doesn't say that. It doesn't say, why are there still boys? I asked you to kill boys. Why are, why are there still boys? No, why have you let this continue? He deems them responsible. And because of this, Christians, theologians, uh, Christian ethicists, uh, I mean, just very well-known thought leaders have taken this passage and said, see, it is okay to lie in a certain circumstance. It's okay to tell a lie if it ends up for the good. Does God operate where it's okay to do bad to bring about good? I mean, that's a, that's a very challenging question, right? I mean, it brings back, you're, you, you have a house, you're a German citizen, it's World War II, you have a Jewish family that you had over to your house time and time again, and now you know that they could be picked up through the Gestapo, through the SS, and, and taken to a death camp, and you never see them ever again. They just go off into obscurity. You just never hear from them ever again. What do you do? So you house them in your basement, right? Because they're your neighbor, and you love them, and you, you, they're your friend, and so you're going to do whatever it takes. And then the officer shows up on your door and knocks. Do you just tell them, nope, no, 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 do you not answer? Do you wait for them to kick in the door? What do you, what do, you do? And so Shifra and Pua, they're faced with a secondary dilemma. Do they own up to their actions? And I think their response shows us if they told a lie or if they had already thought through what they would do since they were followers of the only true God and they were in a service profession. profession. Verse 19, the, the midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. Before the midwife can get to them, they give birth. They're not like Egyptian women. No, they're, they're vigorous. They have life. They have this strength about them. They've been oppressed. They've been living out in the fields, building their homes. They're not living in the same palaces as Pharaoh and his family and the upper elite of Egypt. No, 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 no. They've been wanderers. They're Hebrews. You want to know where the word Hebrew comes from? It's wanderer. Abraham is called a Hebrew because he's been wandering. So they're wanderers. They've got this strength about them. And so Shifra and Pua, who, who knows who spoke first? Was it Shifra? Was it Pua? It doesn't matter because they were unified on this. They say, no, 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 Pharaoh. The Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous. They're full of life and give birth before we can get to them. Now, if you're a professional midwife, I don't think that when you find out somebody is giving birth, that you sit down and make a cup of tea, and you, know, you, eat, you eat something, and then you put it away. You actually wash the dish and put it in the dishwasher, and then start the cycle, and then maybe do a load of laundry, and then get out the door to go and help. I don't, I don't think that's what you would do if you were a professional midwife. I think you would, you're on call. I think you would drop whatever it is that you're up to. You might even drop the plate to rush out the door to go help bring life into the world because that's your purpose. That's what you're committed to doing. So when they say that they give birth before we can get there, I think it shows us something. 
I think it shows us that when we choose to follow God, we cannot be passive in these instances. In fact, we should think through already how we would respond to the biggest challenges that we can think of in our line of work or in our life so that when we meet them, it's not, what do I do now? It's more of a reflex. It's more of a habit. How do you love someone when they're your enemy? If it's not a reflex. I don't know about you, but as somebody who has been in several fights, I'm not very... What, I'm not thinking very clearly of, okay, I'm going to defend myself this way and then this way. I mean, it's not a chess match, right? When you're in the thick of it, everything that you've thought of beforehand is now coming to fruition. So if you haven't thought, you're flailing around aimlessly. In hockey, most people think that hockey fights are, are rather brutal. Actually, most of the time, you're not actually getting hit hard. And the reason for this is because we get trained, we get in practice, so some practices you actually go through how to fight because you might fight your teammate because you get angry at them and they tell you to grab the shoulder and so when you square up with someone you know you're on you're on ice skates so you grab their shoulder of their throwing arm so that when they go to throw you just pull it down so now you have their their jersey they go to throw and you're pulling down you're taking away all of their power and so we practice that so when we get into a fight we get the proper hold so that when they throw, we just pull down and they're not hitting us hard. But we're not thinking about it. It's a reflex. It's a habit. Alan Kreider, an early church historian, he says this about disciples. He says, Christ makes his defense in the lives of his genuine disciples for their lives cry out the real facts. Talking about their habits. Talking about their reflexes. Their lives. How they live. Just naturally cry out whether or not they truly are following Christ. Not if they can preach the most eloquent sermon. Not if they're the most articulate in being able to expound doctrine or, or quote Bible verses. No, it's their lives. It's how they live. It's when they see somebody stuck on the side of the road, they pull over to ask if they need help. It's when they find out that somebody has assistance, they say, hey, I'll go, I'll go to the grocery store. I'll go get your, your groceries because I know that you've had a, a tough week. Right? Their lives cry out the real facts. But then he goes on for, uh, further, and he says, the behavior that performed these good deeds was shaped by intentional formation. They didn't just sit passively and say, you know, when I meet a difficult time, I'll, I'll, I'll get down in my prayer closet and I'll pray, Lord, what do I do? No, they thought through how to meet these issues so that when they came, they had already intentionally formed in their mind which direction they would go. We know this is true because we see this happen all the time. This is Alex Honnold. He's a rock climber. He is the most well-renowned free solo rock climber in history. Free solo is where you climb without a rope. And so he climbs. This is him on the greatest, in my opinion, greatest athletic accomplishment ever because he is climbing this route, the free blast route on El Capitan. That's the beginning portion. He topped it out without any ropes. Without any ropes. He's insane. That's gotta be, there's gotta be a level of fear there, right? I mean, just, just look at how high up he is. This is him on the route. I mean, they made this documentary film, Free Solo. If you wanna watch it, he survives. He survives, he, he lives. 
but your hands will still sweat. You'll watch it and you'll just think, man, okay. I mean, there's this portion in his climb. It's called the boulder problem. Now, bouldering is very physically exhausting. It's all the power moves. So it's where your muscles are used the most. Other routes, you can, you can just kind of walk up like a ladder. It's just, you, you might be, your fingers will be tired, but your back, your shoulders, they, they won't be as exhausted. But a boulder problem, that's where everything meets the challenge. Everything that you have, you summon up every amount of energy, every amount of muscle to top out the boulder problem. So they put up his boulder problem on this route that he did without any ropes in a climbing gym in the United Kingdom. And some of the pro best professional climbers tried it and they couldn't accomplish it. And they spent like three hours trying to do it. And he did it on the rock without any ropes. So why do I bring up Alex Honnold? Because in his documentary, you see him living out of his van in Yosemite. And you see him with his eyes closed and he's doing these hand motions. And what he's doing is he's working through in his mind the route. And so he's visualizing it. He's thinking through intentionally, how am I going to do this? So that when he gets on the rock, he's already climbed it a thousand times. You see Steph Curry, perhaps the greatest shooter of all time. And you see him practice throwing up three-pointers, catching, turning, shooting. Hour after hour after hour. You watch some of the best basketball players practice free throws, and it's hours on end. You look at professionals who are professional in their field, they spend hours preparing to meet the challenge. They don't just all, you know, oh, I haven't done anything, so I'm just going to walk into it, and, you know, we'll see how it fares. No, 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 no. That'd be foolish. They've spent hours preparing. That's, if you want to be good at something, you have to spend hours preparing. And so Shifra and Pua, they show us that not only as disciples of Jesus should we intentionally think through what are some obstacles that we might face in our Christian experience, but that our guiding principle is the awe that God shares with us. It's, the, it's being in awe of God. They could have, they could have chosen to, to follow through on Pharaoh, on his command. They could have said, sure, you're the most powerful man. I don't want to, but you're asking me to. Or they could have lied. Instead, they already had this idea. You know, I'm a midwife. I bring life into the world. Pharaoh is starting to make some decisions that are concerning to me. And so what if he, one day he asks me to kill a Hebrew child? And I can't because God doesn't allow that. So what would I do? And then they come up with this idea. I'll delay you know, Hebrew women, they give birth quickly. If I just delay, just casually, they'll give birth before I can get there, and then it's not. I can't, because they've already, they've already given birth. I believe that Shifra and Pua didn't lie. I believe that they had thought through what they would do. I don't think that God wants us to use bad to accomplish good. I don't think that's how he operates. I think he wants us to use good to accomplish good. In fact, it makes me think of the, probably my favorite quote in all of literature by uh, Ellen White. She says that only by love is love awakened. Only by love is love awakened. You want to help somebody become more loving? You have to love them. Good 
accomplishes good. Not bad, accomplishes good. We know that. Shifra and Pua, I think, show us that. And so as Christians, as we leave here, as we go out, we should think about what are the challenges that we are going to face this week? And how can we think through them in our mind when we go to school, when we go to work, when we engage in that political conversation as our nation becomes more and more divided, when we get into those conspiracy theories about COVID or, or about just the future of the world, whatever it may be, how do we live as a Christian even in that? We should think this through because technically our motto as Christians should be, we exist for those not here yet. We exist for those who aren't here yet. And so we should rid ourselves of being any form of stumbling block. Shifra and Pua, they show us that it was their fear of God, their awe of his glory, that allowed them to intentionally create a Christian reflex so that when push came to shove, they knew what to do already because it was just a habit. And I think that's challenging to us. Will you pray with me? Father, we want to thank you Lord, we thank you because, we, yeah, we don't know who Pharaoh was. We have no idea who Pharaoh was. But we know of Shifra and Pua. And Lord, the story in Exodus is amazing. Because if it wasn't for Shifra and Pua, there would be no Moses. Lord, if it wasn't for the way that you used Moses, there would be no nation of Israel. And if there was no nation of Israel, there would have been no savior jesus but lord we knew that you had the ultimate plan and so you used these individuals and their courage and their faithfulness to down through time bring about salvation to the whole world and so lord we praise you for the witness and the testimony of shifra and Pua. but father as we as we go and, and enter our various Fields, whether that's work or school or uh, relationships, we know that we will be tested. We know that every day there will be the opportunity to choose life or death. And so, Lord, may we choose life even if it means sacrifice. Because our motivating principle, our why, should be your love. And so, Lord, we give you thanks. And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.